You've been planning this day for ages and it's finally come. Perfect weather, the air smooth, the winds are low, everything's looking great. You're heading over to your island getaway with your mates. Halfway across, the engine starts running rough and finally quits. It's pretty clear you're going to have to ditch. But what the hell do you do? Well, in this two-part episode, I'm going to discuss the process for setting up an aircraft for a controlled water landing. All this and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 21 of the Flight Training Australia podcast. The podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. For more episodes you may have missed, you can go to www.flighttrainingaustralia.com.au for a list of all the uh, episodes that are out there, or you can of course scroll through the app you are using right now. Please remember to subscribe, hit that alert bell so you make sure you get content uh, released every Monday, you'll get alerts for those, and please keep those reviews coming on Spotify, give a five-star review, that'd be amazing. And Apple Podcasts, you can also do five-star reviews and also leave a written review as well. Love reading your reviews, helps me uh, keep on track, make sure I know what I'm doing, but also it helps with the rankings and other aviators to find the podcast just like yourself. So thank you to everyone that has taken the time to do that. You can also support me further by joining me on Patreon. So Patreon's a monthly membership a contribution system to help keep the show going. There's three tiers of membership and exclusive content, early access, and more on there. You can download the app and you'll also get alerts and emails of when I do post uh, content only on Patreon. And you can also just follow me and make a donation if uh, you don't want to do a regular monthly contribution. Anything helps, but if you'd like to know more, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Flight Training Australia and that will give you more info there. The link is in the episode description. And you can help me out, just like Mark DeVissa and Roby Miller, who have come on board as well. Thank you, guys. Makes a huge difference. So thank you very much for taking the time to do that and supporting me. All right, so for today's episode, it's a two-part series. This week, uh, it's a topic that doesn't get taught very well, if possibly at all. Very rarely spoken about, in my opinion, and from what I've seen over the years I've been doing this, and that is ditching. All throughout my career, I've had many short and long overwater crossings, and it's always been something I've thought about to manage that crossing to give me the best risk mitigation and options should I have a partial or a full emergency, be it engine failure or otherwise. All right, Just a couple of months ago, there was a, uh, a tragic fatal ditching in Queensland which we obviously don't have all the information about at present. And I want to stress that uh, this is no way in a judgment on the pilot's actions. No doubt he did the absolute best he could on the day with the knowledge that he had. But it did seem to be a survivable ditching had they possibly known what they were doing better. All right, so it's not something we typically practice, discuss, brief or train for. Uh, so it's something that should be survivable has the probability 
of survival drastically reduced as a consequence. So it goes without saying that ditching is another way of saying a controlled emergency landing of an aircraft on water. I say controlled as if done correctly, just like a forced landing on land. If it's conducted under the full control of the pilot, it has a high percentage of survivability. Statistically, the chances of people on board the aircraft surviving the aircraft's initial contact with the water are high. Historical data indicates that up to 88% of controlled ditchings uh, or events result in only a few injuries to the pilot and passengers. But note I use the word initial impact. The real threat is the secondary impact and getting everyone out of the aircraft and possibly surviving a period of time at sea um, in the water until being rescued. So you've possibly seen in the survival section of the IRSA, there's a bunch of info in there uh, about survival techniques uh, for water survival, the huddle position and all those sort of things. I'm sure you've probably done in the swim class at some point. And that's all there. So if you haven't had a look at that, I encourage you to do so. There's also things like practical Hewitt or otherwise known as helicopter underwater escape training available. And if you had not had the chance to experience it and the opportunity presents itself, I strongly encourage you to do it. Uh, it's not open to everybody. Obviously, generally more something that operators or your company is going to cover and pay for and do with you. But there are videos on YouTube uh, going through it all. And even just watching those can give you just some survival tips to greatly help you on that. All right, but we're not going to go into that. That's not going to be the focus of today's discussion. So setting up the approach and the actual water landing itself and dealing with your passengers is. Having said that, if you are involved in passenger transport operations, uh, there have been some significant changes that may affect the way you operate. Uh, chapter 11 and the part 121 MOS and uh, 135 there as a bit of a hint. So go and have a look at that and see how things are changing come June and your company will have to deal with those changes as well. All right, so flying along and the engine gives up the ghost. So what are we going to do? Well, the initial setup is no different to an engine failure over land. Don't panic. Establish a glide first. Do your initial trouble checks. And then if that's no good, we need to find somewhere to land. However, paddock selection just got a little bit more difficult, didn't it? All right. How the hell do you land on water? Well, firstly, this process, like any engine failure after takeoff or airborne, is going to depend on how much time you've got available. If you're low level in the circuit, for example, you're most likely just going to have to accept what's in your immediate vicinity and what's in front of you. Right, but if you do have some altitude on your side, then you need to make a quick assessment of the surface conditions. Obviously, the selected area for the ditching will greatly influence your chances of survival. So as per a land-based landing, if you can pick an area close to help, that would be prudent, a beach, a boat, anything that can render aid or assistance as quickly as possible once you hit the water. Remember, time in the water is a threat to survival, depending on where you are. All right. Now, normally, we want to land into wind. But in this instance, landing into wind is usually landing into waves. You're going to see some diagrams suggesting landing on the back of a wave. Now, 
I've seen most of you hit the aiming point on the runway uh, like never. So how you're going to actually expect to hit a moving target heading towards you is anyone's guess. All right, now waves are generated by wind. They travel in the same direction as the wind and therefore landing into a local wind will most likely be into the waves. Swell, on the other hand, is regular waveform produced by distant weather systems over long areas of open water and generally won't align with the local conditions and they can also uh, change refraction due to land-based uh, impacts and change as well. So this presents a bit of a problem. So your choice of touchdown direction is ultimately going to need to be a compromise between reducing the touchdown speed, i.e. your energy, and remaining controllable and ultimately upright during the impact sequence, which again will go a long way in improving your survivability. Your aircraft AFM or POH, Aircraft Flight Manual and Pilot Operating Handbook may contain guidance on uh, wind sea state criteria and touchdown landing direction. Right? If there's no formal information, there's other tables and things out there which will give you a bit of an idea of how to determine wind speed and wave relationships on your uh, touchdown direction. So again, roughly zero to six knots, you're going to experience glassy, calm to small ripple conditions on the surface. And this is going to make the height of any waves very difficult to judge. All right, so you'd want to try and ditch parallel to the swell if possible in between. All right, seven to ten knots, you're going to start seeing some small waves, maybe a few white caps, not many. Again, a parallel ditching to swell is what you're looking for. 11 to 21 knots, larger waves. So you're going to start seeing more white caps now. So you want to try and use a headwind component as much as you can, but still ditch along the general line of the swell. And this might mean a slightly diagonal approach. Right, then we've got 22 to 30 knots and more. We're starting to see medium to large waves, foam crests, numerous white caps. You're going to have to go for the wind, uh, ditch into the wind and on the crest because we just can't land with a crosswind like that. It's going to flick you over. You'll end up dropping a wing a wing or a landing crosswind and sideways, which is going to be worse. So it's going to have to be picking the less of both evils. So once that ditching location has been selected, all right, it's now time to prepare the cabin and put on the life jackets if not already done so. Now, I've done plenty of student checks and often with a water component, and they'll be sitting there very proudly with their life jacket and tell me that we've got to take it. But it doesn't take much for me to ask one or two questions and they actually realise they've never even looked at this thing, got no idea how to put it on. So talk to your local flying school or research the life jacket that you've got in how it actually functions and operates. How to check if it's current, if it's serviceable, how it works. You're typically going to find two types. The bag style, which is in a tear open bag and then it goes up and over your head or the quick donning style life jacket all right now remember rules are life jackets on at 2000 feet or below okay so it's not below 2000 feet so at or below 2000 feet we need to have life jackets on now 
if you're dealing with an engine failure and trying to fly the aircraft down, how are you going to put your life jacket on? All right, just put the thing on. It's so much easier. A little bit of discomfort and you'll be all the better for it. All right, quick donning style are the pre-packed ones that are strapped around your waist and that meets the requirement for the wearing of a life jacket because they're designed for you to grab the bag, open it up, and then you lift it up and over your head and then it's on or quickly donned. All right, so that's a quick donning life jacket. They'll typically have two bladders, all right, a forward and an aft bladder, and that means you've got a bit of redundancy. So if one happens to deflate or get uh, caught or fails to inflate, you've got a secondary one, which would be enough to keep you upright. All right, exiting the aircraft and life jackets. Remember, do not inflate the life jacket before you've exited the aircraft. This is absolutely critical, and I'll get onto this a little bit later. All right, briefing your passengers if you're in charter, you need to make sure that you actually explain how it works. Now, most people don't want to listen, and I know there's plenty of cases of people doing passenger briefs, usually because they don't think anyone's listening, and they mumble it and rush it, and there was pretty much no point in even doing it. So if you're going to do it, take the time, be professional, and do it properly. Remember, the people you're talking to could be in your way and blocking your exit. So it's in your best interest to make sure they know how to get out. All right. I've also seen videos on YouTube of passengers outside the aircraft with life jackets on, but not inflated. So again, remember you as the pilot command need to lead everybody. But we'll talk about that a bit more in a little while. All right. So now to the ditching itself. Judging height above the water can be really difficult. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this. Uh, very soon, I'm actually going to be doing my floating hull uh, rating and can't wait to do that. And I'll have so much more idea on how to judge water and wind and all these sort of things. All right. But in a way, this is good because I'm approaching this with the same kind of level of experience as you guys, i.e. none. All right? I've never ditched an airplane before either but I've done a bit of reading on it and that's what I'm encouraging you to do too. So altimeters aren't going to mean a whole lot. Remember, one hectopascal can be 30 feet and suddenly that kind of accuracy would be really handy right now, especially in glassy water conditions. So if you're lucky enough to have a uh, radar or a radio altimeter, that is going to be fantastic because that'll work very, very nicely and tell you exactly how high above the water you are. All right, but glassy water can be extremely difficult to judge for depth perception. All right. The key is you want to be coming down as a shallow a descent as possible, 100 to 200 feet per minute max. Of course, trying to do that when your engine's dead is pretty damn difficult. You're going to be doing more like 750 to 1,000 feet per minute depending on what you're in. So the next key is going to be to maintain a safe speed above stall and have some room that we're going to be able to get our timing critical as to the flare and dissipate as much of that vertical injury uh, vertical energy as possible before we impact the water all right so in a power failure scenario if it's just a power loss or partial and the engine hasn't quite quit yet 
then the aim would be to use as much of that engine power you have left as possible and get yourself down on the water. All right. If you're heavy, the more weight, the more energy or speed is going to be needed to maintain that ratio. So it's not really practical to probably start chucking stuff out the window like you see in the movies, All right. but you're just going to have to be mindful of it that they're the cards you've been dealt and be mindful of your configuration and approach speed. Lower the weight, lower the speed, lower the energy on impact. Most AFMs will give guidance on the water ditching configuration. All right, I'm not going to go into specifics because it's going to depend on your aircraft type, but you're generally going to find the guidance will be to maintain a margin above the stall speed to ensure that control is maintained. And like I said in the start, this is a controlled water landing. If we lose control, just like in a multi-engine scenario or an engine failure after takeoff um, or stall spin incidents turning on the final, it's all over. Okay, so we must maintain control. If we're in a retractable aircraft, we want to have the gear up and we want to use the advantage of full flap. The wings must be kept as level as possible on impact to avoid one dipping in and spinning you around and again, potentially causing injury. All right, you're doing great. We're almost down. Now for the impacts. Yep, sorry, but there's going to be more than one. Aircraft with fixed gear are typically going to strike the main wheels first. Now, if you've seen some videos of float planes coming in with the wheel down landings, you'll probably see what happens. It's very quick, very violent pitch down and secondary nose impact as the aircraft uh, then comes to rest with a tail vertical in the air. If it's a retractable aircraft, it's typically going to be a tail first strike, then a violent pitch down as the nose digs in and the aircraft rapidly decelerates, hopefully coming to a rest horizontal. Hiring aircraft can soon end up with the fuselage under the water fairly quickly. So again, we want to be mindful of that. Water will be flooding in and immediate escape uh, is critical. Whereas a low-wing aircraft, you're typically going to end up with the fuselage above the waterline. The problem is there's just so many variables that what will and won't happen, I can't fully tell you. It's just general guidance. You just need to do your absolute best and be ready to exit the aircraft once the aircraft has come to rest. So how do we exit? Well, opening the doors or windows can let water in if it's not coming in already, right? Possibly the fuselage or hull has uh, torn and water is already coming in. Now, this can work for and against you. If you're trying to push a large door, which is what, two to three feet square against water rushing in, there's going to be too much pressure. You're going to have to let the water come in and equalize either side of the door before you can probably get out. Forward doors are most likely going to start flooding first. So if you're in an aircraft with rear doors, that's probably going to be your best option. This is sort of information that you want to be briefing your passengers on. Remember though, as per any emergency, disorientation, panic and injury are all elements which are going to need to be managed somehow. You may have already identified some of your passengers who seem to be fairly uh, calm and capable that may be useful in an emergency. So 
just take a mental note of that sort of thing. You, as your pilot, sorry to say, you may be injured. All right. You're going to be flying the aircraft. You're not going to be able to brace yourself well. You could hit your head, uh, et cetera. So make sure there's someone there to look after you and potentially help you exit if need be. As I said before, life jackets should be put on once the ditching is known. However, do not put it on over your seatbelt as you may become entangled. So you may need to remove uh, shoulder harnesses or uh, lap straps if they're going to get tied up into the seatbelt and the life jacket buckle, and then make sure the seatbelts are resecured. All right. It's all going to happen pretty quick, and everyone's going to wish they listened to you on the tarmac now. So make sure that you give a good thorough briefing if you're going over water flight regularly. So remember not to inflate the life jacket before you get out of the aircraft. You risk floating to the roof or down the back and becoming entangled or puncturing your jacket. You also may have a life raft on board. Again, needs to be thrown outside and then inflated as soon as possible. Life raft sitting in the baggage locker at the back probably that's where they're going to stay. So be mindful of where the life raft is and make sure it's accessible. This is one of the issues with the new CASA regulations of having the life raft on the front seat instead of a paying passenger. It's a bit of a compromise, so we'll see what happens with that one. All right, once you're outside the aircraft, you need to keep everyone together and typically try and stay near the aeroplane but not necessarily attached to it. The aircraft could go under fairly quickly and you don't want to be going down with it. So just keep everyone clear and try and stop anyone from drifting away. If you're near the coast, make sure you assist everybody, get to land, or if you know that there's some help nearby, wait for them to come to you and render assistance. A lot of information to take in there and probably one of the more serious topics we've talked about, but I hope it has made you think about things a little bit more and considered your local flying area and the typical flying you do and the aircraft you're doing it in. Remember, taking life jackets with you is not a regulatory obligation. It's potentially a life-saving action. All right, but remember how to inflate it, check it serviceable, and remind yourself of the ditching plan for your aircraft in your local area. CASA have a really good advisory circular. It's a good read and it's available in the description for this episode or you can search for it on the CASA website, but the link is there to take you there. That is it for this week's episode, guys. Thanks for downloading and listening in. Stay tuned. Next Monday, I am talking with Lynn Gray from Fly Oz, a good friend of mine who we have a bit of a history together uh, where she has actually witnessed and then ditched herself uh, on two ferry flights that I uh, assisted in. So a really great episode, really good chat with Lynn. She's going to tell us all about her experience through it, which would be great for you to hear. So please make sure you come back and join me there next Monday. If you want to reach me, you can do so, as many of you have this week, actually. So thank you all for your emails. Keep them coming. You can hit me up on info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Trent Robinson Aviation. All right, links in the description below. 
Thanks to everyone for listening. Have a fantastic week and look out for the mailbox uh, questions coming out this week. Put your comments underneath and I'll see what I can do. Until next time, clear skies and remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>